This sermon was recorded at the Church of Christ, Northwest Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth, according to the New Testament. Come worship with us Sunday mornings at 1030 at 1708 Elm Springs Road in Springdale, Arkansas. Uh, Before we begin, I want to thank Ben for the prayer on my behalf uh, as I come to speak before you guys today. Today we're starting on Proving Scripture Part 4, Apocrypha. In previous lessons on Proving Scripture and its origins, we talked about the organization of the Bible, the inspiration of the Bible, and how the Bible was canonized over time. It didn't just one day spring up from nowhere, containing 66 books. It was written by man via divine inspiration of God, giving the Bible a dual authorship. It was organized, and eventually, after a long time of going through many books to determine what would be included and excluded, all put together similarly to how we have it today. Not only that, but its authority comes from God, and it is infallible, meaning it it is the truth, and it is useful for teaching. It is inerrant, meaning that it is without error. I've used this verse quite a bit. Uh, but 2 Timothy 3.16-17 tells us all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. If God is perfect, which we know that He is, then His work would also be perfect. Therefore, the work that He breathed into man being the scriptures, would be perfect. It would be without error or contradiction. Today we're going to be discussing the other books. We're going to be discussing those other works. Writings that were written around the time of the Old Testament, around the time of the New, that contain material of a seemingly spiritual nature about God and the faith, but are in fact apocrypha, and false teachings. Before we begin into that, we need to talk about determining false doctrine. What is false writings? The Bible tells us in Ezekiel 13, 6-9 to beware of false writings. It says, They have envisioned futility and false divination, saying, Thus says the Lord. But the Lord has not sent them. Yet they hope that the word may be confirmed. Have you not seen a futile vision? And have you not spoken false divination? You say the Lord says, but I have not spoken. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have spoken nonsense and envisioned lies, therefore I am indeed against you, says the Lord God. My hand will be against the prophets who envision futility and who divine lies. They shall not be in the assembly of my people, nor be written in the record of the house of Israel, nor shall they enter into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord God. Because indeed, because they have seduced my people, saying, Peace, when there is no peace, and one builds a wall, and they plaster it with untempered mortar. False doctrine is nothing new, and we see it happen all the time in Apocrypha. We see Uh, scripture constantly warning us about it. And certainly it is a great example of false doctrine, people claiming the word of God when it's not the word of God, but it is certainly not the only. 
Scripture also tells us that God's word is the same forever and always. In Hebrews 13, 8 to 9, says, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever, be not carried about with diverse and strange doctrines, for it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace, not with meats, which have not profited them that have been occupied therein. God's word does not change. It doesn't vary. He's not going to tell one person one thing and another person a completely different thing. <clears throat> not only that, but his word will last forever. In Isaiah 48, it says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. <clears throat> that is one thing that heavily differs uh, Apocrypha from Scripture, from writings and, and false doctrine. While new false doctrine seems to pop up all the time, they do not last. God's word lasts forever. It's been with us since it was created. Every writing has lasted through the ages. False doctrine, apocrypha, they do not last. They do not hold. Not only that, but God's word does not contradict. In 1 Corinthians 14.33, For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints. God is not going to confuse us by saying one thing and meaning another or changing what he's saying. He's a guide, and he guides us. We can look at his book for whatever we need as Christians. I, I showed this picture, I think it was the last time that we spoke. Uh, this is a map, a reference map of the Bible. If you look here at the bottom, each time you see it change color, that's a different book different uh, shade of gray is a different book of the Bible, starting with Genesis here at the beginning and Matthew here at the beginning of the New Testament. And each line is uh, a different chapter in each book, the length denoting the length of that chapter. These lines here are every time that one is referenced back to another and how interconnected, you can visibly see how interconnected all these books are. Over all that span of time that the Bible was written, and they are so interconnected, they're, they're, I used the term last time, they're hyperlinked. You can look at one verse, and that verse is going to take you to another verse in another book, and there's no contradiction through all these years, through all these different writings, there is no contradiction. Because our God is not the God of confusion. There are so many dangers nowadays that we're seeing pop up in, in false teachings. And the main danger that I, I think of when I think of these false teachings, these false writings or false preachings, is the fact that life is in the Word of God. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4 says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved. If you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain, for I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried 
that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Life, truth, faith, salvation is found in the scripture. This is why it is so important for us to study, to discern false teachings from the word of God. It is a life and death matter. In recent years, and I say recent years from a historical perspective, uh, past 50 years or so, we've seen a lot of change, a lot of people trying to bring in false doctrine, a lot of newer false writings. Uh, an example would be uh, David Berg, who wrote the Mo Letters. He was a uh, cult leader for the children of God. Some of you may have heard of Jim Jones and the Jonestown Massacre and what happened there. It was a mass suicide of around 800 people that were following the false teachings of this man. Joel Olstein and his prosperity gospel that he teaches to all these people that does not match up with the Word of God. And even Billy Graham, who goes as far as to teach that baptism is not necessary for salvation. It's all scary because it all matters. It all is changing what the scripture is teaching. It's not showing what God wants us to know. Apocrypha, in general, can be described as writings with a religious background, though not necessarily, necessarily founded on truth. Uh, they're often written by people that either have an agenda or these people have a desire for more writing. Uh, I can't claim that all of them necessarily have a specific agenda. Sometimes it really is simply they want more stories and they want more writings because they read the Bible, they enjoyed the Bible, they enjoyed these works, and they're like, I want more. I would actually describe them somewhat in a modern term as fan fiction. Some of you may or may not know what fan fiction is. Uh, it's where somebody reads something, reads a story, watches a movie, whatever it is, and, and they really enjoy it. And so they want more. So they'll sit down and they'll write more because they know other people want more of this thing. That does not mean that story is part of the other story. Just because somebody wrote a story about a Marvel character like Thor or whoever or a Harry Potter character doesn't mean that that's actually part of the story. And that's really what you can compare some of these apocrypha to. Just because it was a writing about that person or about that time period does not mean that it is about, that is, that is part of Scripture. It is not part of that. <clears throat> the Old Testament Apocrypha took place or was written between the time of the Old Testament where the Old Testament leaves off and where the New Testament begins. And there was a lot that happened. And sometimes, you know, you're reading the New Testament, you're reading the Gospels, and you notice, man, there's something different about the Jews in the New Testament than the ones that you read of in the Old Testament. What happened? 400 years happened. 
roughly 400 years happened and a lot happened to them. There was a lot of pain, a lot of suffering that was going on. During that time, they were originally under the control of Alexander the Great. In 323 BC, he died though at that time. And they were in his territory. And so because he passed away, control of that area passed to Seleucius I, one of his generals. But in 320 BC, they were immediately annexed to Ptolemy of Egypt, to his own territory. The control of the territory would shift <clears throat> constantly under different rule during this time, placing the Jews under constant political and social pressure. Often they worked to pacify the Jews, and they were constantly under a military threat. In 205 BC, Ptolemy V dies, and Antiochus III of Syria decides to annex Judea. Egypt tried to stop them, but they failed in 198 BC. This, this war that was fought was fought in their homes, on their land, in their area. It was all around them. Antiochus was actually kind of fair towards the Jews, but if anything, he was just tolerant. He didn't like them, he didn't care about them, but he didn't do anything to them either. Eventually, by military force, Rome took over part of the region that was connected to Judea in 190 B.C. And while they didn't take over uh, Judea and that region just yet, this put a lot of pressure on Syria. And what Syria did was they kind of lashed out a little bit against the Jews because they had a lot of pressure on them, so they're going to put that pressure on somebody else. During this time, the people of the Syrian Empire also began to try, and uh, try to force their Hellenistic beliefs on the Jews. Think kind of Spanish Inquisition. It wasn't always peaceful. Sometimes it was violent, and they would try to make them, force them to believe what they wanted them to believe. And the Hellenizing of the Jews, which is a specific time period as well, though it started way earlier, um, was in 175 BC to 164 BC. This actually eventually led to a revolt made successful under the leadership of uh, Judas Maccabeus, whose name is kind of a little bit important, and you'll see that come up as we get into the Apocrypha a little bit more. In 142 BC, Judea became independent from Syria, though the whole situation was incredibly volatile. There was a lot of conflict going on between the Pharisees, between the Sadducees, the scribes, and the Hellenized Jews, people that actually did go ahead and accept um, the Greek Hellenistic beliefs 
into their uh, Jewish faith. Probably just because it was easier. And in 64 uh, BC, Pompey came and conquered Judea and made them part of a Roman province. This period where the Old Testament Apocrypha was written was full of unprecedented political, military, social, and religious turmoil. You can see the desire for freedom from this life. You can kind of picture their desire for a savior who would bring about an earthly kingdom. You can kind of pick up, even though it's not doctrine, even though that's not biblical, you can see their want for it because of all the pain and the suffering that they endured. So the writings of this time reflect that. <clears throat> They're partial fact, mostly fantasy, and the fantasy being a huge part to try to give people hope and hope of a, of a savior that would come and destroy all these kingdoms that caused them so much pain and caused them so much hurt. <clears throat> the books that make up the Old Testament Apocrypha are 1st and 2nd Esdras, Tobit, Judith, additions to Esther, the wisdom of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, Baruch, the letter of Jeremiah, additions to the book of Daniel, and 1st and 2nd Maccabees. There is actually a 3rd and 4th Maccabees as well, but it is so outrageous that it is even considered kind of apocrypha to the apocrypha. So they don't even really include those in that category. Most of the time, there are some that, that will still include it. Um, while these are still apocrypha, uh, they actually do hold a lot of Jewish traditions, uh, including a lot of feasts that they have, a lot of holidays that they have come from the Apocrypha. Hanukkah comes from the Maccabees. It comes from that time period. Um, but even then, even then to the Jews, and even now for most of them, it's not included as canonical. It's not included as part of their scripture. They just kind of look at it as tradition. <clears throat> First Esdras, for example, is a compilation of historical material from the Old Testament uh, specifically Chronicles, Ezra, and Nehemiah, a lot of those stories. There are a few others in there as well. It includes some interesting interpolations on some stuff, such as uh, the debate of the three soldiers, where it just talks about uh, supremacy, uh, the supremacy of truth, though there's a lot of historical errors still within it, uh, a lot of inconsistencies with the canonical sources that it drew from. Uh, second Esdras is mostly a Jewish apocalyptic writing. Searches, it does a lot of searching again for a Messiah that will restore Israel to its former glory. Again, it's a focus on an earthly kingdom, not a spiritual kingdom that we have in Christ. Tobit, what a wonderful name for a child. Wish my wife would let me name child Tobit. 
is mostly romance and folklore. And honestly, it's kind of an interesting read. It's a little fun. It's a little goofy. Um, but Tobit was just a folklore, a folktale that they told to kids. And he was an example of charity, of justice, of uh, morality and religious obligation. There is no historical facts in it that are accurate. None. Uh, geographically, it is also incredibly inaccurate. Judith, whoop, Judith is a story of a Jewish woman who comes and whoop, kills a uh, enemy leader. I'm trying to find my mouse here. There we go. Uh, who, who kills an enemy leader uh, and saves the people. But again, it lacks any historical uh, or chronological facts. It is very, especially chronologically, inaccurate. Uh, the additions to Esther, that's one a lot of us have probably heard of. A um, little bit more familiar with hearing about additions to Esther. It was written years and years later after Esther was initially written, and it was written in uh, Greek, not written in Hebrew, and they're not included in our Bible for that reason. Um, and they just don't match up with what Scripture says. But again, there are <clears throat> parts that you'll see little notations in your Bible when it comes to Esther. That's not what I'm talking about. These are completely separate. Then there is the wisdom of Solomon. The funny thing about the wisdom of Solomon is... It was written in 100 B.C. Solomon probably died around 932 B.C. It's 800 years, over 800 years after his passing. And it essentially just elaborates on the teachings in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. But a lot of the doctrine here is a lot closer to Greek Hellenistic doctrine than it is to... Uh, the Hebrew to, to the, the, word, the actual word of God. So most likely this was actually probably written by a Hellenistic Jew, not by even somebody that faithfully followed along uh, what the scripture speaks on. Ecclesiasticus was written around 180 BC. And the guy that wrote it he was just a scribe that wanted to make his writings permanent. How do you make, or make his teachings permanent? Easiest way to make your teachings permanent? You put it on paper. And so people were like, oh, he wrote it down on paper. I think I'm going to keep this and include this as part of what I believe. So that's where that came from. The additions to the book of Daniel. Uh, there are three main additions. <clears throat> They're mostly supplementary. Uh, but they're completely foreign to the Hebrew and even the Aramaic translations. Uh, they only ever pop up in the Greek translations. Uh, one is the prayer of Azariah, which looks at the divine justice of the Babylonian exile. Then we have the three young men. Uh, it's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace, <clears throat> and 
it just it's a song that they would have sang or, or a prayer that they would have given up <clears throat> to God once they had gotten out of the fiery furnace. There's a story of Susanna, and it tells of how Daniel saved a woman from death, but it's most likely just based on a Babylonian story. And Bell and the Dragon, which ridicules idolatry and shows the powerlessness of Babylonian gods. It's a really interesting name, but none of that is part of Scripture. Um, another one that I didn't put up here is the Prayer of Manasseh. And it was simply this guy kept a prayer journal, and he wrote a prayer down. And people decided, hey, I like that prayer. I'm going to put this with my other stuff. That's all it was. And then the Maccabees. First Maccabees was written like Chronicles. And in that, it was written like a spiritual historical record of the nation during the, the Maccabean period. It is actually fairly historically accurate. Um, if you're trying to get a study of this time period, of this in-between time, it's worth looking at, for sure. Uh, Second Maccabees is a continuation, but is more theological and contains a lot, a lot of errors, um, especially in contradictions with Scripture. But something interesting about the Maccabees that the others don't do is... Maccabees knows that it's not scripture that he's writing, and he actually writes that down too. In 1 Maccabees 9.27, he says, <clears throat> And there was great tribulation in Israel, such as was not since the time that no prophet appeared unto them. He's, he's denoting the fact that no legitimate prophet, no, no legitimate prophetic writing has come to them for some time. It has ceased, and many of the Jews would have actually recognized this as well. I mean, he's, he's recognizing what they're all feeling about these writings as well within this. He's saying, yeah, this isn't scripture. I'm just making chronicles of historical record of what's going on. That's all he's doing. The New Testament Apocrypha is fairly similar to the Old There we go. Uh, the New Testament Apocrypha is fairly similar to the Old Testament Apocrypha in that the writing was mostly a desire for more story. Uh, a lot of it was a desire for Jesus' life. It dealt with a lot of his childhood, a lot of his family life, um, that people just, they wanted more. I mean, who doesn't want to know more of what it was like raising Jesus as a child? That just sounds like such an interesting thing. And so people saw that, and they decided, I'm going to write a story about that. <clears throat> a lot of it, I mean, all of it, all of that was within, completely within the realm of fantasy. A lot of it that was written was also about the apostles' lives. It dealt with many events after Christ's ascension. Some, mostly fantasy, there might be some facts mixed in there. I don't know. I'm going to be really honest with you when it comes to that because there is so much fantasy blended in with it within the same writings that it is really hard to determine if there is any facts at all. And also many writings 
showed up to piggyback off of the, the New Testament scripture, to piggyback off of its success, the way it was being spread around. Since all of the books were shared and spread individually, it was fairly easy for somebody to, to bring in a, a writing that they wrote themselves and, and treat it as though it was part of it, since the New Testament wasn't put into a collection just yet at the time of most of these being written. But the church leaders knew. As soon as they looked at it, as soon as they read it, they were able to tell, yeah, this isn't, this isn't the Word of God, this isn't Scripture. And so they would throw it out, and eventually they were thrown out and uh, collected as apocrypha, completely separate from the New Testament Scripture. We're not going to look at all these individually. I'm going to kind of put them in collections to look at because they're all so similar to one another. Um, but as for the infancy Gospels, they work to supply the reader with a supplementary reading of the young life of Christ. Uh, they're completely within the realm of fantasy, uh, of fantasy to the point that any intelligent reader would know that these were within the realm of fantasy. Uh, one example is there's a story in the Gospel of Thomas <clears throat> that tells of Jesus as a child going down to a stream and making clay sparrows on the Sabbath day. And Joseph's like, where's my kid at? I hope you better not be doing anything that he's not supposed to. And so he goes down to the stream, and he's mad at Jesus for making these clay sparrows. So what's Jesus do? He claps his hands. The sparrows come to life. They chirp, and they fly away. That's, that's the kind of stories that pop up in these, and they are so out there. They're so strange, and if anything... If you were to look at that as scripture, it would tarnish the character of Christ and who he is. They are not scripture. They are so contradictory to who Christ was. <clears throat> the Passion Gospels, which you'll notice some of these will say passion on them, um, they embellish on the canonical accounts of Christ, on his crucifixion, and on his resurrection, but many of the ideas were completely outside of the scope of the New Testament doctrine. Uh, they attempted to fill in the hidden years of Christ's life, what happened before his ministry, and, and stuff like that. Then we have the different acts. All the different acts. There's so many of them. And this is not all of them. There are a lot more than this. Many of these actually function as sources uh, for many of the traditions concerning the apostles, uh, including, you know, Peter being crucified upside down. I mean, you don't find that in Scripture anywhere, but a lot of people have heard that. Um, they, they believe Peter was crucified upside down. I think that's within the realm of character for something, something for him to do, but we can't prove that biblically speaking. Uh, <clears throat> So while many of these are largely fictitious, there might be some information within that was true but was simply embellished upon, but there's no way to really determine that. But I could easily see somebody hearing a story about Peter 
writing something about Peter and deciding to add a true story in that so there would be some truth within the fantasy. Uh, many churches acted very harshly towards these books, as they should have, uh, and a lot of them ended up being burned. Another thing about these books is a lot of false doctrine that you'll see in some churches today actually originated during this time and popped up in here. Uh, one example would be complete abstinence even for married couples. It was a huge theme throughout a lot of these books. And that's honestly, that's probably where the Catholic Church gets that idea from, uh, of complete abstinence throughout your entire life, whether you're married or not. The earliest of these dates back to about 150 AD. Uh, so about 50 years outside of the time the, uh, the scripture was actually being written. <clears throat> and like I said, you know, many more of these exist. There's a lot that are of an apocalyptic nature. But at best, all these writings have to offer is maybe a little bit of tradition that we can see in history. That way you can kind of track it back. Um, but none of it has any biblical foundation. And at worst... They are completely devoid of historical value and contain many false ideas about the true gospel and about the doctrine that God has laid out before us. Now, when we speak <clears throat> of Apocrypha, most often we talk about much older material. Uh, even with the New Testament Apocrypha, what's categorized as New Testament Apocrypha, the most recent one was written around 3rd <clears throat> uh, to 4th century, so about 1,600 years ago, <clears throat> would be the most recent one. But, you know, many people have come along since then and have attempted to misguide people with creation, the creation of their own writings that they deem to be spiritual writings, faith-based writings, writings that I will call the New New Apocrypha. We have writings by people, like I mentioned, uh, David Berg. He was so full of himself. He considered himself to be the New Moses. And he even gave himself the nickname of Mo. And he wrote what's called the Mo Letters. And like I said, he was the leader of a cult called the Children of God, that cult is still around as Family International. They have thousands of members still. There is a chance you might stumble upon somebody like this that, that's part of that. And if you're going to study with them, maybe look into this. Otherwise, I suggest don't even look into any of this at all. It will break your heart to see the amount of pain this man caused with his writings, with his teachings, the amount of kids that were hurt by this cult. That's what false teaching has to offer. The writings of Jim Jones, I mentioned uh, 800 people, some of it was suicide, but some of the people were forced to follow along with the cult. We have the Quran. Um, 
would be considered apocryphal work because it tries to build off of uh, the Bible as well, off the Old and New Testament. And then we have the one that we're going to dig into a little bit deeper today because they consider themselves to be Christians as well. And so they need to be held to this standard as well. We're going to look at the Book of Mormon. There is a lot of contradiction between the Book of Mormon and the Bible. There is a lot. We're going to go through some of it. We're not going through all of it. I don't want to be here for hours. I like lunch. I like going out to eat places. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this. But I feel like it's important for us to take a look into why this is an apocryphal type work. First of all, something that the Book of Mormon teaches is children are incapable of sin. The Book of Mormon teaches that kids cannot sin. It's impossible. Ben, did you know that your, your kids can't do any wrong? They're perfect. They're absolutely perfect. What's the Bible say? What's the Bible tell us? It says in Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. We as man have a sinful nature. Kids can do wrong. Kids can mess up. Children can sin. It is a thing. But the Book of Mormon tries to say, nope. They can't. Kids can't sin. And they don't have an age limit on this either. I'd say it's probably, a lot of the time they'll baptize around like 13 or so. So I'd probably say that that would be their age limit, would be a 13-year-old can't commit sin. That's just kind of an inference on my part, but you can kind of see the way they work with this, doc, with this false doctrine, with this idea. Another one deals with the fall of man. They have a very interesting look at the fall of man. And they claim that Adam and Eve's sin was necessary. God wanted Adam and Eve to sin. That way, they could conceive children and bring about joy. That's what the Book of Mormon teaches. That, that's what God wanted. Didn't you know that he wanted that all along? It's not what the Bible says. I don't have it up here because it doesn't fit all the way, but we're going to look at Genesis 3, 16 to 19, if you so choose to turn there with me. That's Genesis 3, 16 to 19. God says, Unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception in sorrow. Thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree, of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. You know, to me that doesn't sound a whole like, like God was sitting there saying, 
Oh, good, you figured it out. You did exactly what I wanted you to do. No. God was upset with them. Romans 5.12 says, Wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. So death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. It's not what God wanted. It's what man wanted in that moment, but that's not what God wanted. He wanted them to love him and to obey him and to obey his commands and to, to desire to have a relationship and to follow him. Man chose otherwise. That was not God's desire. Not only that, uh, there is no indication whatsoever that in order to follow the command to be fruitful and multiply, that man had to commit sin. You don't, there's, there's no indication of that whatsoever in any scripture. But the Book of Mormon teaches that God contradicts himself and wanted mankind to just figure it out. He just wanted us to, you know, figure it out. It's right there, you know, just kind of do your own thing, figure out what I mean. That's what the Book of Mormon teaches. That is not what God teaches us. He guides us, and He loves us, and He cares for us, and He wants to be there to lead us. He is not the God of confusion. Another interesting one is the curse of skin color. The Book of Mormon teaches <clears throat> that dark skin was a sign of God's curse for sin. So Book of Mormon teaches. And that, you know, white-skinned people are morally and spiritually superior to dark-skinned, black-skinned people. That's what the Book of Mormon teaches. Did you, did you know that, Miguel? Did you know that? I'm, I'm superior to you. I mean, look at me. <laughs> That's what the Book of Mormon teaches people. That is not what Scripture teaches people. You've got to realize the Book of Mormon, though it tries to say otherwise, was written in the 1800s. There was a lot of racism going on during that time, and so a lot of that bled into the Book of Mormon. The Bible says, though, in Acts 17, 26, and hath made of one blood all nations of men, for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. We're all from the blood of one man, all of us. Miguel and I are cousins, practically. <laughs> all of us are, are related <clears throat> because of God. Not only that, you know, in Galatians 3.28, he says it doesn't matter. He says there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male or female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. It doesn't matter the, the color of your skin, where you come from, your, your heritage, your background, your ethnicity. We're all one in Christ Jesus. There is nothing like skin color or anything like that that makes anyone better than another. Another interesting thing that you see pop up with the Book of Mormon 
is that it claims parts of the Bible will vanish away. They claim that parts of the Bible would disappear, would vanish. We just kind of went through part of this, but what's the Bible say? It says in Mark 13, 31, heaven and earth shall pass away. My word shall not pass away. The word of God's not going anywhere. Matthew 5, 18, for verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one title shall in no wise, or yeah, in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. The word of God is not going anywhere. It is alive. It is with us. It's not going to fade away. The Book of Mormon probably did this to get around the fact that it is presented as a lost book and from before the time of Christ. The length of time of darkness is another interesting thing. At the crucifixion of Christ, the Book of Mormons, or the Book of Mormon declares that there will be three days of darkness fall upon the land. But Scripture kind of says otherwise. More than once. In Matthew 27, 45, now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. So three hours. Mark 15, 33, and when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Luke 23, 44, and it was about the sixth hour, and there was a darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Nowhere in there can you fit three days into three hours. That's what the Book of Mormon teaches as a prophetic writing, since it was technically written before the time of Christ. Let me see. Uh, Some try to actually make the argument that the three days of darkness only applied to the Americas, though specifically says that over the face of all the land. How does that make any sense? It's completely contradictory. Their argument lacks any soundness. They try to make excuses. They try so hard to make excuses for this book, but all their arguments lack any sound proof, or any true doctrine. There are so many more contradictions between Scripture and the Book of Mormon that, like I said, we're just not going to go through them. We're not going to hash them all out. The Bible is perfectly linked within itself, without contradiction. He doesn't leave things for us to just figure it out. He leads us through his word. The amount of falsehoods and contradictions within the Book of Mormon cannot stand when placed next to the Bible. Neither can any of the Apocrypha. Neither can any false teaching. All you have to do is set it next to the Bible and see that it is false. Is to look at it through the Bible and determine whether or not it is truth or it is fiction. The Book of Mormon is, at best, an apocryphal work. At worst, it is just complete blasphemy. The word has always been, or the world has always been full of false teachings. And as Christians, 
2 Timothy 4, 1-5 tells us, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. He says to preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lusts shall they heap themselves teachers, having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth, and shall be turned unto fables. But watch thou in all things, endure affliction, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. We need to prepare ourselves constantly by being ready through the study of God's word. False doctrine is going to pop up all the time. There's going to be new stuff popping up constantly. We've seen new stuff within the past year that popped up that we have to to battle against through our study of the word. People are going to follow after their own desires and place false teachings, writings, and teachers where the word of God belongs. Some from new sources, some from old sources. And it is our job as Christians to be ready. To be ready for it no matter where it comes from, no matter who it comes from. At this time, we offer an invitation. If anybody has any needs of the church, any needs of the saints, and you've been having issues lately, you've been struggling in any way, or you want to accept the gospel, feel free to come forward as we stand and sing the song that has been selected. We hope you enjoyed this teaching from God's Word. If there's anything we can do to help you in your walk with Christ, send us a message at facebook.com slash cfcnwa. To find more sermons, look for us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and like our Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and God bless.